Uh, you know, each, each summer when we think about what we might think through as a church family, uh, we try to come up with some ideas. We think Jesus actually guides us in these things to what our, what our church family might benefit from, from hearing. So a couple of years ago, uh, we thought, well, let's go snooping in people's mail. That should be interesting, right? Don't worry, we didn't hack any of your mail. Don't worry about that. We went snooping in ancient mail. We went snooping in Paul's mail. Remember first century hero, like writer of much of the New Testament guy? Well, as you well know, if you know his story, he traveled around the Mediterranean uh, basin and he started churches, like outposts for Jesus. And uh, then he would move on to the next place. And in several of those churches, he wrote letters back to them. And uh, the last couple of summers has been such a treat to think through these letters, look at the historical context, and see what we can learn as well, though we are like almost 2,000 years later, we still can learn from it, right? And so uh, we've looked at uh, his letter to the church in Philippi, the church in Ephesus, and uh, this summer we want to look at what is a bit more obscure. I'll bet you don't read this one all the time. Uh, It's a letter that he writes, he actually writes two of them, we're just going to look at one of the two letters he writes to the church in Thessalonica. It's a port city in northern Greece, and uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about it. But in order to introduce it, we want to do something a little different today. The Bible Project, if you've heard of them, they have this wonderful way of animating the stories of the various letters, books of the Bible. And uh, so we're taking this directly from them. It gives you a little bit of context, a little bit of history, an overview of the book itself, uh, the letter to the church in Thessalonica. So take a look at this. I think it'll help with getting the backdrop. All right, kind of cool, huh? If you're interested in looking at it, you can go uh, on YouTube and you can search the Bible Project, or you can even go to their website. They have a whole variety of these different uh, letters and books of the Bible. They're fascinating to watch how they've animated them in that way. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give a little bit, pick up some of what they've presented already, and give a little bit more background to what exactly this letter is all about, what this community of faith is all about. Uh, and uh, really, my hope would be that you would, after today, go, I, I, man, I'm looking forward to this summer. I'm looking forward to learning about what Jesus would have for me and for the church as a whole, and that you would, uh, if you can't be here each weekend, that you would go on our website, download what we record from each one of our weekend services, and track along the way. So where does this all start? Well, if you read a little earlier in Luke, you're going to read about how Paul has a dream one night, and uh, this dream has a profound impact on his life. It's a relatively simple dream. He doesn't understand it initially, but what he sees in this dream is somebody from the province of Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica is, uh, literally waving for Paul to come over there because he needs some help of some kind. And after wrestling with that for a little while, Paul concludes, well, that must be God's voice, and I'm up for a road trip. So he grabs his buddy Silas and possibly Timothy, and they head off west, heading toward Thessalonica to be there with the people that are there. Now, we read about this story in Luke chapter 17, and I want to read like, how it all comes about, how Luke records it. So let's start with uh, verse 1 of chapter 17 of Acts, and uh, here's where we go. It says, Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia, and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Stop there for just a second to give you a little bit of context for the geography of where this is exactly. Here's a map of the area. Uh, The green line, if you can see it, is uh, Paul's trek. He came all the way from Jerusalem, actually, but goes from Troas over to Philippi, which, remember, the Philippian church. And then 
they have a few problems there. He heads over to Thessalonica, and uh, that's what we're going to look at. It ultimately heads down the coast of the Aegean Sea to Athens, and approximately a year later, maybe even a little less than a year, he arrives in Corinth. And it's in Corinth where he writes this letter back to the Thessalonian friends, uh, and we're going to look at that letter. So, uh, let's pick up the story again as these three men, possibly three, maybe, uh, maybe just Paul and Silas, but possibly Timothy as well. Uh, verse 2 says this, as Paul was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service for three Sabbaths. Keep that in mind, just three weekends it refers to. Three weekends in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people would have been their scriptures. He explained the prophecies and he proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah, which was so different from what they thought. They thought Caesar was the Messiah. Not the Jewish people in the synagogue, but the Greek city itself would have thought that. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. But some of the Jews were jealous. So they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, who apparently had taken Paul and Silas, maybe Timothy, in, searching for Paul and Silas so that they could drag them out to the crowd. Well, not finding them there, they dragged out Jason instead and some of the other believers and took them before the city council. And this is what they accused them of. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted. And now they are here disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They're all guilty of treason against Caesar. Very, very serious charge. Capital charge, actually, if if it happens. For they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. In other words, not Caesar. The people of the city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil by these reports. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond. And then they released them. Well, that very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea, off to the west a little bit further. Well, this experience was not new for Paul and his companions. It seemed this kind of thing followed them wherever they went. They would go and teach about this new king in the Roman kingdom, and uh, whether it was Jews or Greeks, there was pushback to them. So they end up heading down the Aegean coast, as I said, Thessalonica and Corinth, and this is where Paul writes this letter. Now, uh, the, the people that met, Paul and Silas and maybe Timothy, those three, four, five weekends, whatever he was in Thessalonica, have won Paul's affection in very short order. It's amazing to watch. And as he travels down to other parts over that year, he never forgets them. They're in his mind. You see, he left so hastily And there's no email, there's no internet, he can't call, he doesn't know what's happened to them, and he's just concerned for them. He's I think he's wondering, like, what happened to Jason and the others? They got bailed out, which he might have heard about, but like what happened? Were were the charges ever pressed? Like were they ever did they ever stand trial? Like what happened to them? Did the Jewish leaders kick all of the Jesus followers out of the synagogue? I wonder if they're still following Jesus, or maybe I was there just too short a period of time for this to take root, and maybe they've all wandered away, and there isn't any church active there any longer. Maybe they've given up with Jesus, and they've gone back to worshiping pagan gods. 
You see, Paul was really concerned because he had developed a friendship with these people and he really cared for them. So it appears that he either left Timothy in Thessalonica or Timothy is with Paul in Corinth and he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, about a month or two journey, to find out what's going on. He wants information about these friends. Timothy comes back or heads comes back from, leaves Thessalonica, but he meets up with Paul in Corinth. And Timothy gives a report as to what has happened in Thessalonica. And Timothy, maybe even to Paul's surprise, says, Paul, it's good news. They're doing great in Thessalonica. The the church is thriving. It's a wonderful, alive community of faith. It really is. And you get this sense that Paul gets the information, and he quickly sits down, and he says, i got to write them a letter. i got to encourage them. I want to cheer for them. I want to tell them, this is fantastic. I'm so glad you're hanging in there with Jesus. I was worried about you. I was concerned. But way to go. Keep your pedals on the metal. Keep going. Keep doing it. You got it. And so he pens this letter and sends it off with Timothy heading back up to Thessalonica. This letter that we're going to spend some time with this summer is a little unique from the others that Paul writes. Uh, It's, uh, as the animation said, it's probably the first writing in all of the New Testament. And you you know, of course, the New Testament is not written in chronological order, right? And there's bits and pieces here and there that eventually got bound together But this is very likely one of the earliest pieces that was authenticated as a legit part of uh, the Holy Spirit's inspired word. Unlike some of of other letters that Paul writes, some of them are corrective, some of them admonish. Paul points out a few things that he's concerned about, uh, but that's not the case here. It's this wonderful letter of encouragement, of cheering for them and encouraging them to keep going. He says uh, things like, you know, I... I'm not going to tell you anything new. You've heard all the things that I've told you before. But I just want you to know, I am so pleased with what God is doing in your life and what you're doing. In a way, you could, be, you could say that he says it this way. You know something? I've seen that you, from Timothy, that you're increasingly thinking like Jesus. And that's a wonderful thing because what happens when you increasingly think like Jesus, you increasingly are mistaken for him. And the real marvel of what that is, is not only you as individuals, when you increasingly think like him, are you mistaken for him, but the real power of that is when the whole community of faith together increasingly think like Jesus, and that community of faith as a whole is increasingly mistaken for Jesus. And in a way, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Now, does that sound somewhat familiar? That's what we feel our mission is. That individually and collectively, we would be individuals and people together as a community who would increasingly, with our long walk with Jesus, we would just naturally and easily grow in our love and our knowledge of Him. And then we would think more and more and more like Him. And that would result in people who are increasingly mistaken for Him. It's one of the reasons why we picked this letter. Because it's an encouragement to us. You're on the right track. Keep going. And we learn so much from what Paul has to say to the church in Thessalonica that applies to us. You see, Jesus invites us to increasingly think like him because he fully intends that we would be mistaken for who he is. So, this is the reason why we called this series Pixels. See, pixel is a metaphor for what Paul's writing to his friends. You know what a pixel is? Well, I'll give you a definition. A pixel is a minute area of illumination on a display screen 
one of many from which an image is composed. Pixels are combined to form a complete image, video, text, or any visible thing on a computer display. You and I are a bunch of pixels. That's what we are. Congratulations. We're individual, unique points of light. However, when we are combined together into one, we reveal an incredible picture of who Jesus is. Now, I don't know if you took note of the kind of introductory short video that we did right at the very beginning, just before I came up, where all the pictures came together and formed a picture. Do you know who those pictures are of? Well, let me show you again, just to show you what this is about. So those pictures are of us. A few years ago, we had just moved onto this campus, and we were really intent to communicate that the church is not a building, it's not a campus, it's not that. The church is people. That's what it is. And so over a couple of weeks, we took pictures of everybody that we possibly could find here at Copper Hills with a sign that said, I am church. Remember that a couple of years ago? Well, those are those pictures. This last week, we put all those together again because it communicates so beautifully that each one of us are a pixel, but when we come together, we actually form a representation, an example of who Jesus Christ is. And it is this idea that Paul wants to bless the church in Thessalonica with. He says, you're a bunch of pixels, but you've all come together as a community, and you look like Jesus. And I think he turns to us and he goes, you pixels, you. You represent me individually. But oh, the power. When you all come together and you all grow together and you help one another grow, you become this unbelievably amazing representation of who Jesus is to our world. And our world longs for that kind of hope that only Jesus offers. There's one sentence in this letter that I have read over and over again, and every time I read it, I notice it again, probably because I've multicolored, outlined it, and underlined it, and I, it could be. But it's a sentence that I think captures this idea so clearly for Paul and what's in his heart. So we'll look at the whole letter as we go through this summer, but here's one verse I would love for you to keep in mind throughout this week, throughout this journey this summer. It's the seventh verse of the first chapter of this letter. And this is how it starts. It says, as a result. As a result of what? As a result of what Paul's just said in the first six verses, which is, you discovered Jesus. And you might have been thinking it was all a little mysterious and you didn't understand it fully. But you understood enough to say yes to him. And you experienced spiritual life. And he came and he occupied your mind and your heart. And he walked with you and he's grown you, and he's formed you into people that are so like himself in so many different ways over really just a really short period of time. And because he's done all of that, as a result of that, get this, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece. Now stop and think about it. That's amazing. That's remarkable. How many weekends was Paul with them? Three, maybe four, five weekends. But something got birthed, like a mustard seed happened. And it grew into something that all the believers in Greece, throughout both Macedonia, that's your province where you live, and Achaia, which is the province to the south of them. Here they are, a church, just birthed, just new, less than a year old. 
And people for hundreds of miles are hearing about what Jesus is like through them as a church. It's remarkable. It's a wonderful picture. It's a really amazing thing that this is the influence that Jesus is having through them. It is like us saying this. Jesus has done such amazing things in our lives individually and us as a community of faith that against all odds and through significant opposition and threat, the whole state of Arizona has heard about him and what he's doing in our lives and in the community. And in not just all of Arizona, those desperately hopeless lost people in California also have heard. The word has gotten out, not about us, but of what Jesus can do through people who were formerly not his. But he grabs hold of their world and their life. And hundreds of miles around, the wonder and magnificence of Jesus is talked about. Don't you want to be part of that? I do. Imagine with me. Imagine that you live in first century Thessalonica. Can you try to go back there? Imagine you're a resident of this city. It's a modern, beautiful city on the north coast of the Aegean Sea. Temperate climate, thriving economy, major thoroughfare, highway, freeway that goes through it, bringing lots of traffic and lots of trade. It's a city with national influence. It's a city where Alexander the Great was born, so it's got fantastic history. It's a winter home for the northern folks. It's got plenty of amenities, recreation, and religious activity. And that's your town. That's your city. You live there. It's where you've raised the kids. It's where the grandkids maybe are. It's where you work. It's your city. Imagine that's your city. It's a city that's replete with gods and goddesses. The patron god of this city is Cabrias. It's kind of, he was referred to as a martyr god because he had died in this pantheon of Greek mythology. But he would come back one day and he would rescue the Thessalonians from some drastic, terrible crisis in the future. And so there was kind of a cult following that he had. But not just him, there were Egyptian gods and mystery gods of the underworld, Isis, Zeus and his friends. They all had meeting places and temples and so on. There was also, as we know, a Jewish temple, or a synagogue rather, that was built to the one true God, which is where Paul ends up. And of course, the center of the city was another temple. And this was the temple that was built to Caesar himself. And you would worship Caesar at that place. It would be a temple where every year you would go to pledge allegiance to Caesar and the empire of Rome. To not do so was treasonous. Every week, throughout the week, maybe every day, for the really devout, they would go to the temple of Caesar and they would worship him there. And they would make him the center of their, not only their worship, but their lives in many ways. And this is your world. This is what you do. This is what I do. This is, imagine we lived in that world and it was normal and natural that that's what we did. The worship of Caesar and these pagan gods and goddesses was woven into the fabric of social life. Unlike us, where we kind of feel we have at times our, like our religious life and then we have our work life, our career, our educational life, our, fa- our family and friends. We separate things kind of and we're amazing at doing that. That's not the way that it was for them. For us, you know, we, we kind of box things out. For them, it was more like, well, their identity. Like, we would say we're American, and we don't have to explain that. Like, 
There's just an American culture about us. There's a rhythm to us, how we do things, our, our patterns, our values, our unique culture. We don't really even think about what it really means to be American. We just are, right? Well, for them, that's just who they were, and that's just who you are if you live in Thessalonica. If you live there, these gods were just a natural part of your life. You didn't have this dichotomy in these various categories. Everything was mashed together around the gods and worshipped to them. They were central to everything. For example, if you were a business person and you wanted to put a business deal together, you would hash out the details with a potential business partner. And then once you had figured that out, you would go to your temple of choice, to the god of your choice, and you would together make a sacrifice to that god as a way of solidifying the contract. Because if you didn't, the gods would get you. And so this is, what you, this is how you did business. You conducted it in the temple. If you were going to make a business trip outside the walls of the city, you wouldn't think of making that dangerous trek outside the city into dangerous territories without first going to your God, making a sacrifice, and asking for journey mercies along the way. Unthinkable that you would take a trip without doing that. Just like you might think about taking a trip and you pause to pray. It's a natural part. It was a natural part of your life in Thessalonica. If you and your wife wanted to start a family, you know what you would do? You'd go to the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of fertility, and you would ask her to give you a beautiful boy child because boy, did you want a boy child, right? If you were sick, you went off to the god of medicine and you would ask for healing. See, it was just part of every part of the fabric of life for you as you live in this first century environment. It's your daily life. Now, here's the thing. These ancient gods were not happy people. They were not pleasant. They were volatile, generally grouchy, capricious, mostly angry, demanding, and you really never really could satisfy them. But they were powerful, and they influenced every part of the world. You were kind of living on thin ice and in constant fear that you would do something to disappoint them, and they would get you. This is your life. This is how you live. And then one day, out of the blue, Hardly noticed. Three Jewish guys walk into town. Sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Three Jewish guys walk into town. They find the local synagogue. And they start talking about a new story. They talk about how this world all began. And what the purpose of the world is. And who created this world. And they tell a radically different story than you've ever heard before. Something different than what you've grown up with and you're used to hearing, and it just sounds so different. They tell you that there is one God and only one God, and He created everything. And if He isn't yet your God, and you follow the pagan gods, He's over all of your gods. In fact, these three guys would tell you that your gods are only made of stone and wood made by human hands, and though they try to control you, They don't control you unless you let them control you. And although there may be some spiritual dynamic behind the scenes, they're really not worth your attention. They're certainly not worth your fear or affection. There's only one creator, God, who actually came from the heavens and became a human being, get this, less than 20 years ago. That's how fresh this story is. News hadn't even spread around the whole world yet like it has today. You would hear a story that he arrived on earth in a small, out-of-the-way, podunk, little unknown town called Bethlehem and was born to a peasant couple. He lived and died and then came back to life and unleashed healing and salvation for every human soul. And one day, 
would be an absolute authority and recognized in that in every square inch of the cosmos. And this is the story you've never heard before. Never. It's foreign to you. But here's the strange thing. Something begins to happen inside those people who gathered in the synagogue with Paul and his friends those days over just a couple of weekends. But not just in the synagogues, things started to happen in their homes and offices and gymnasiums as they went back to those places. And they talked to people about this incredible story about this one God who had come into the world and had done so much, had died and come back to life again, and the whole history of humanity hinged on that. And it only happened 20 years ago. And they would go back to people and talk about it. Now, though they didn't understand it all, it started to make sense in some ways and created an odd desire to know more and more about this new king that Paul was talking about. They begin to see changes in lifelong patterns in their own lives, in their thinking. It starts to occupy their thoughts on a daily basis and throughout the day. And even a few of them in time, over those three or four weeks, actually say, you know, I think I've become a believer. I think I believe it. And there's things that are changing in me that I can't explain. It's all a bit mysterious. But I like who I'm becoming. And I like how I'm thinking. And I like the peace and what's going on in my heart. And here, they discover that Jesus is really Lord. It's not Caesar. And guess what? You're one of them. You're one of those people who, after growing up in this pagan environment, discover and believe that Jesus really is the Messiah. So, against some long-held assumptions, you abandon your idols. You announce to your spouse and parents and children, boss, neighbors and friends, everyone who will listen, that you have found the true and living God and now worship Him only. You are a follower of King Jesus. And as much as you might anticipate you know better, this is now not going to mean that everything's going to go well for you. No, becoming a Jesus follower will not result in a peaceful, easy feeling. It is not going to be easy. It is not going to be a comfortable life. It actually creates all kinds of problems for you. To start, giving up your gods and the social system they created caused you to lose a little bit of equilibrium. You lose your way in life just a little bit because it's so odd. I read one writer describe what this might have felt like or what it would feel like would be compared to suddenly giving up the internet. If you can imagine that. You could do it, but life would really suck without it. You would feel disjointed. You would feel out of place with it. Not to mention it would be difficult. No email, no text, no phone, no social media. I mean, how do you get hold of people? How do you talk to one another? How do you get your work done? How do you explain that you are no longer doing Wi-Fi and the Internet to people? How does that make sense to anyone? You're some kind of fanatic, aren't you? Uh Uh-huh. You tell them you canceled your Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, Skype, Snapchat, WhatsApp, Tinder... And Facebook accounts. And they think you're a little odd. They mock you for it. How would you even live? It's a whole new life, right? Maybe that's close to how odd this must have felt. Well, it created not just a little bit of weirdness and a little oddness to it, but it created hardship. It might mean for you that you would lose your job because you no longer are friends of Caesar. might affect your business profoundly because customers now boycott you because they've heard you're no longer affiliated with Caesar. Maybe poverty happens. Maybe you're even charged with treason. It's a capital offense. Who knows where that goes? 
Never mind the wreckage that it would cause with your family and personal friends. You're cut off, you're mocked, and you're shamed. And I've heard some of your stories that when you have maybe walked away from the faith of your parents or your childhood to follow, maybe follow Jesus, just what that's done in your home. It's something you can't talk about because there's hurt and disappointment with it. And yet here's the thing. You're not alone. In fact, as abandoned as you are, you've never felt less alone. You're part of a brand new family and a group and a community called the church. And it's filled with people just like yourself who at great risk and loss aligned themselves with Jesus as Lord. And in spite of not understanding all of it and in spite of all the hardships, something mysterious begins to happen in your group. You and these people with you are spilling over with more joy, contentment, and peace than you ever thought was possible for you, ever. You have a light that shines in your heart in spite of deep darkness all around. You know you're fragile like a clay jar, and yet you somehow sense you have this incredible treasure inside your own soul. You have an inner power and energy that's fueling you. Sure, you're being pressed on every side by trouble, but you just don't feel crushed by it. You're perplexed, but you're not driven to despair. You're hunted down, but never abandoned by God himself. You're knocked down, but never destroyed. And through your suffering in your bodies, you gain a personal understanding of what Jesus suffered for you. And rather than create resentment, it creates worship for him. It's the craziest thing. But it's deep, and it's real, and it's reshaping your whole world. And so Paul writes this about you, you first, first century Thessalonian who's become a Jesus follower. He writes this, as a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us, how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. Now flip it around to today. The dream here is that you and I would live the kind of life in Jesus Christ and Him alone that would cause people to talk about us. Oh, not about our campus or the programs we have or the center of the arts or a kind of cool coffee shop or whether we're like the right size of church for them or the pastor is incredibly good looking and the hippest guy in the whole world. No, 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 no. It's true, but no, 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 no. We don't want people to talk about this being the exact fit for the list of things that you're looking for in a church. No. We want people to talk about Jesus Christ because they think that he's believable and he's real because of what they see happening in us. We want them to talk about these kinds of things, that there's something about this community of people that when they get together, it's not a weekend event, but it's a gathering it's a gathering with their king and he's real. And I, I walk into that gathering and there's a sense of his presence that he's actually there and there, there are people singing songs like it's, like they're singing to him and he's right there. 
They're communicating and talking with him like he's right there with them. They open the Bible and it's not some guy teaching. It's like God's breathing through their gathering and they're learning and they're growing and it's shaping and forming their lives. And they talk about Jesus because of what Jesus is doing here. They talk about how forgiving we are of one another. That occasionally we hurt one another, but it's just not a long memory of those things. And we go to one another and we clear it up so there's not dissension or chaos that takes foothold. They're the kind of people who put a sign out in their plaza area to remind everybody that not only are they imperfect and welcome, but they're going to they're gonna do their walk with Jesus next to other imperfect people. And rather than expect perfection of one another, they actually embrace the imperfection and they help one another and they encourage one another. And when someone takes a huge banana peel face plant, they don't scold them and mock them, but they reach down, they bend down and they pick them up and they put them back on their feet and they walk together in that. They actually have a relationship with people in their neighborhood and the places where they work, where the people that work around them go, you know, if I don't know about God and I don't know about Jesus and the love of Jesus, but if he loves me anything like you love me, I think maybe I could believe that Jesus loves me too. This is just who they are because Jesus has taken hold of their hearts and their souls and their minds and they're increasingly thinking like him and lo and behold, without trying, they, they, just, they start to be mistaken for him. And that's the beauty of this letter that Paul writes to his friends in Thessalonica and says, I'm so proud of you. You started with Jesus and I was only there for a short period of time and I was so afraid you would, well, you'd lose your way. But through opposition and pressure and difficulty and struggle and joy and all those things, you are doing great. Keep going. Keep going. So we're going to learn about family and leadership. We're going to learn about sex. Yes. We're going to learn about what happens when we die. Yes. All these wonderful practical things that are part of your and my life, all from that perspective of People are talking about who Jesus is because of how you do those kinds of things in your world. And you don't do them to do them. You do them because of who you've become in Him. And it's a wonderful thing. Keep your, keep your foot on the pedal. Keep going. Will you join us this summer and learn and be encouraged through what Paul teaches his friends here? Now, Jesus, you graciously used Paul to communicate to... I can only imagine some followers of yours in uh, Thessalonica that from time to time had some discouragement and doubt and question. We don't know much about the kind of persecution and specific struggle that they had. We don't know that personally. But Jesus, if they could hang in there with you and have joy in that, and our difficulties aren't nearly like that. I mean, we have them. But could it be, Jesus, this summer, you would encourage us through this letter to think about who we are in you, what you've done in our souls. And could it be that people in this city, maybe even beyond this city, would talk about you and would marvel at who you are because they see who you have formed us and who you're forming us to be. We'd be delighted for that. How often we pray, Jesus that you would create here a church you've always dreamed would exist. And we'd be so blessed if you would do that 
and we'll be thanking you for it.